0: Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're
1: crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxis tires deliver. Choose Maxis.
0: Dread victoriously. Why should you read Forlow Magazine? Because 4Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find 4Low on a newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On this week's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we will be talking with Phil Howell, Phil has led a very full life with jobs or careers that's been a long list. From record DJ, celebrity photographer, fighter pilot, Jeep tour operator, magazine editor, and to being the true godfather of competitive rock crawling. Let's talk to Phil about his very interesting life. Today, we have Phil Howell. Phil, I'd like you to share with us your life story. I know that there's a lot of things behind the scenes that you've done that especially any of the newer people that are into off-road have no idea about. And some of us guys that have been around since the eighties don't know the whole story. So Phil, we're asking you the whole story. Let us have it. You know, where did you, uh, where did you grow up at? Okay. I was born in Upland, California.
1: And then uh, right after I was born, my parents moved to Red Hill in Cucamonga, which is now Rancho Cucamonga but it wasn't fancy. When I grew up there, there was like, I can't remember the altitude was the same as the population. Oh, it was 1200 feet above sea level. And it had 1200 people on the sign that the California sign as you drove into the city limits. But when I grew up there, it was orange groves and vineyards. I mean, that was the major industry there was agriculture. And even though we only lived 45 minutes out of L.A., we were over the hill in the Inland Empire. And it was like a world away from Los Angeles, although we still use the freeways to get everywhere. (laughs) But but anyway, so I grew up there. It was really a lot of fun. I like to go exploring. I was in Boy Scouts. We used to hike we were right at the foot of the San Gabriel Mountains, so I hiked up to all the peaks. So I used to go on 50-mile hikes in the Boy Scouts up on the John Muir Trail every mm-hmm. summer, and that was a blast, and it, I think that's what started me getting interested in exploring. I just loved to go out where there weren't that many people or where people had been but weren't anymore. I loved history, and uh, in high school... I used to go, I spent all week in my free time. I'd go in the library and the school had a pretty good library and they had guidebooks like Russ Lederbrand's uh, California Byways and uh, which was uh, printed by AAA, uh, you know, the automobile club. And he talked about not only paved roads, but, but dirt roads and ghost towns. And, and I would read the desert magazine, of course, and read all kinds of stuff about ghost towns. And then on the weekend, go out and explore. My dad had brought home a 1966 Yamaha Trailmaster 80, which in those days, there weren't any, the mini bikes were mini bikes, you know, with a Briggs and Stratton motor on them. Right, no uh,
0: suspension.
1: Yeah, no suspension, had a tube frame and a Briggs and Stratton, but I never had one of those. And I'd look at my friends that did with just envy and my dad brought home a Yamaha Trailmaster 80, brand new, and it was a full-size motorcycle. And so I learned to ride on that. And uh, probably 67, 68, we got, I got a CL77 Honda 305 Scrambler, <laughs> which nowadays we look at it. had to be laughable to take off-road. But all I did was pull the muffler off the twin pipes which were high because it was a scrambler you know the scrambler had been used though in the Baja Baja 1000 in the Nora one of the very first races the scrambler was used and won uh, huh. I don't remember which year but anyway I rode that then kept getting into it my friend uh, a guy named Sean Packer his parents started a business called Allied Motorcycle Salvage and they bought all these old bikes and, and then I would work for them alongside Sean. We'd strip these insurance wrecks for parts. I made a little money there and, and was able to buy a bull taco. And first I had an old Campera, which no one knows about, cause it was kind of just an obscure Spanish, nothing. And then I got a Matador, which had won the international six day trials and uh, not my bike, but that model. And then got a Persang. And we'd ride these things down to Baja. We'd, We'd go down to, the pavement ended at San Felipe. And we'd take off and head down to Gonzaga Bay. And there was nothing along that coast, along that Gulf Coast. I mean, now I guess, I haven't been down there well since 92, but there was now I hear it's just houses. Americans and and others have uh, vacation homes. There was nothing. You hit Puerto Citos, uh, had a little little cantina and a hot springs, and and then you'd go up through the Seven Sisters if you've been down there over the mountains. Oh yeah. And then down into Gonzaga Bay. Oh, Alfonsinas was down there. But that was a blast. And we used to ride the motorcycles down there. At least every summer, we'd go on a two-week trip and go down there. But I was really into motorcycles. But then I got my license. And uh, I decided to, uh, I needed a vehicle. My dad had an old 1961 Chevy. Well, it wasn't that old then. But a 1961 Chevy Apache 20 two-wheel drive pickup with a six-cylinder and it had been a shop truck. So I and it didn't run. He was going to just get rid of it. And I go, Dad, I was 15. And I go, Dad, could I buy your truck from you? And then I'll build it over my 15th year. And when I get my license at 16, I'll have a vehicle. He goes, yeah. So he sold it to me. I proceeded to build this truck back. And I it had the six-cylinder. I found an old 348 Chevy V8 with tri-power with the three carbs on it. Now, 348 was a a smaller, same block, but a smaller version of the 409. You know, she's real fine, my 409. Oh, yes. She was real great, my 348. (laughs) But I stuck that thing, and I didn't know anything about vehicle work. I mean, I really didn't know what I was getting into, and it took me most of that year. And I finally got it in and I had had three on the tree and the shifting forks were worn out. It was right on the firewall where the shifting forks were. So I remember going on one of my very first dates in my truck. I was so proud. We get on Euclid Avenue, which is a a four lane with a great big center divider and foothill, which was Highway 66, which was another four lane. I'm turning left. I get diagonally in the middle of it. And the shifting forks freeze up. Uh, it had little bushings that wore out. And, it, and if they got out of alignment, it frees up. So we're stopped in the middle, blocking all directions. <laughs> I had to get out. I opened the hood. I knew what the problem was. I yank up on the forks, get get it to shift, get back in. And we go down. So I turned to the girl that I was with. I said, so what do you want to do? She goes, go home. <laughs> I had grease on my hands and the old truck. So that was my first experience with girls and trucks. But, <laughs> uh, but I had this two-wheel drive. And as I said, I'd go and I'd explore, I, I'd explore magazines and, and books about where to go exploring. So now this is a two-wheel drive. And I'd be out in the desert. Well, what I did was I bought snow chains. And I put them on the rear drive wheel of this truck. And believe it or not, that worked. I'd get through deep sand and I'd drive till I got stuck. And then I'd, I'd dig it out, jack it up, put put the chains on it. And then off I'd go again with the chains. <laughs> Pretty low rent. <laughs> but then I got a Jeep, a 1972 CJ5. It had a 304 in it. And uh, boy, I thought that thing was cool. And those those Jeeps weren't the best, you know, I mean, it was pretty nice to have a Jeep, It didn't have a fuse block. It had all inline fuses. The brake lines were routed in the front underneath the grill. And it had a single body mount in the front. And so if you hit a bump wrong, the body would flex onto this hard steel brake line and break it. And so you'd lose your brakes. (laughs) The clutch had a rod. You may know about the CJ clutch rod, when it wore it drop out (laughs) you'd be up i've had a number of these jeeps and this one it didn't do it because it was still fairly new it was a used jeep but it was fairly new it was still 1972 and uh but i i had i was a musician i played play the stupid clarinet from the time (laughs) i was in second grade i hated it Nobody cool played a clarinet. I wanted to play a guitar. You yeah, know, but they made me do it. They made me practice every well, they, my dad, made me practice every day for an hour. By the time I was in high school, I got pretty good and I got to switch to saxophone. So I didn't have the clarinet. now. There's
0: a cool instrument.
1: Yeah. And I played E-flat alto, I played tenor. I I was in Cal State Honor Band for I don't
0: know, four
1: years and and all Southern California honor band for three years. And in those, I always played something different. I played contrabass bass clarinet, alto clarinet. The only thing I never quite got was the flute. I was never good at playing a flute. But oh, well. But anyway, so I, I had music scholarships to San Diego State and to U- USC, University what? of Southern California. But they were too close to home, and I wanted to get out. And I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, you know, and BYU's in Provo. I had no scholarship to BYU, but my parents were always worried about my rebellious nature. I wasn't that bad, but I don't know. (laughs) I was kind of rebellious. They thought it was great. I would rather go to a church school up north. Well, BYU didn't accept me. Cause my grades were too low. I, I, I found out about fifth grade that I didn't have to try at all to get C's. So I quit trying. (laughs) And and if you're younger and watching this, don't do that.
0: (laughs) You'll regret
1: it. But, but anyway, um, so my grades weren't high enough and they didn't care about my music. So my Bishop of, of my ward in our church and my dad went up to Provo and talked to Dallin Oaks, who was the president of the of the college and talked him into interviewing me. So then they had me come up and I interviewed with him and he said, fine, you're in. So I got in. Awesome. I went to BYU. Well now from Southern Cal to Provo is what? 600 miles. I don't know. I think I drove about 600 miles, maybe less, but it was a long way.
0: 600 and miles in, oh, uh, a whole different world.
1: <laughs> yes, Highway 91 and you were here, you lived here. Highway 91 was the highway. There was a stretch of freeway from St. George to Summit, right past Cedar. Right. Then it turned into two lane all the way to Beaver, and then you had a little stretch from Beaver to Manderfield, and then it was two lane all the way up to Santaquin, which is south of, of Provo. And you went through all these little towns, you had gotten with semis in front of you, you know, it was something. And I had a CJ with a crappy soft top and a V8 with gas, it was way expensive. It was 32 cents a gallon. (laughs) But you know what, I couldn't figure, I, I was going, well, why couldn't I afford to buy gas when gas was 32? And I have an inflation calculator. And I looked it up, and $0.32 then was like almost $3 a gallon today. So no wonder I couldn't afford it. And it was uncomfortable, didn't go fast. Uh, So I traded it in on a 1972 Opel Manta Rally, (laughs) a car. And I put CBA driving lights on it. And it was orange with a black hood. And, it, and I got my SCCA competition permit. I joined the sports car club at BYU. And I got my SCCA competition permit and uh, raced that car in showroom stock,
0: wow. which was an
1: SCCA. Um, it, they'd started that in late 71, early 72 and what you did was you brought your car. You had a roll cage in it and a fire extinguisher. That's all you had to have. <laughs> you couldn't go out. You could go down one size and tire if you wanted to improve your gear ratio. But I didn't. I just I mean, I didn't have the money anyway. But I raced this thing and I wasn't a very good driver. And I would win. I'd win, win, win. And so would everybody else who had Opel mantas. The car was so good and so neutral that didn't much matter who was behind the wheel. It just it worked, and so they disqualified the car. They finally said that that car could no longer be racing in showroom stock. If you do a search for not for Opel Man and SCCA, you'll see the story about how it was too competitive, so they knocked it out of the class. Other cars in the class were the Datsun. Um, 510s? It was before that. Um, oh, 510. Yes. Five-ten. Yeah, you're right. It had 510 BMW uh, 2002. Yep, they 2002. Had yeah. And then uh, Volkswagen something. And it was those kind of cars, the little little compact car. I love that thing. And I drive it back and forth, and I didn't know how to drive in snow. And so I finally got snow tires on the rear and I would put um, all my books in the trunk. And after that, I was able to go. I'd come home one weekend, at least a month, maybe two from Utah to California. I'd come home on Friday night after going out on a date. I'd get home Saturday morning. I drove through the night, be there the weekend. And I'd go home Sunday night and get there Monday morning in time for school I don't know how I stayed awake, <laughs> but I did. So anyway, I had that car. And then when they disqualified it, I was getting the urge to go out, go four wheeling again anyway. I traded that car in on a Toyota Hilux, Hilux, we like to call it here, pickup. Now they didn't make a four wheel drive then. So once again, here I am with the snow chains on the back exploring around. And that truck, I kept it for quite a while, especially for me. Before I got rid of it, I would have to take a paper plate, take the air filter off. I had a hole poked in the paper plate, and I'd stick it over the carb and then start the truck, and it acted as a choke. Then I'd pull it off, and my current wife said, I will never go out with you again if you bring that truck. So it was kind of beat by the time I finished I bought, then after that, I bought another, uh, I bought a 74 CJ5, and then drove that a while, then sold that, bought a 75 CJ5. By now, it's 1978. I bought a full-size, oh, I had found a Mustang, a 69 Mustang convertible, and an old lady in a trailer park owned it. And it had 30,000 original miles, it had a 351 Cleveland in it from the factory. It wow. had air conditioning, which was also strange for a convertible. I bought that, owned it like three weeks and said, what am I doing with a car? And uh, I talked to Brian to chew it Brian's on, <clears throat> he was one of the very first, he was the mover, one of the movers and shakers who started the Baja 1000 and oh, famous wow. racer. And then he had an accident and it hurt his head and he kind of quit. Well, he did quit racing, although he stayed in the, our world. In fact, he's the guy who designed the Jeep scrambler. His idea was what brought the scrambler to fruition. But anyway, Brian owned a big Jeep dealership in Southern Cal called <laughs> Chihuahua Jeep, believe it or not. <laughs> anyway, so I was talking to Brian about this Mustang and that I was stupid again. I want to get another four-wheel drive. And he says, well, why don't you trade me that Mustang for a new full-size, you know, Grand Cherokee Chief that he had sitting there, a brand new one. In 1978, it was white, had that Indian blanket seating in it. I mean, this thing was awesome. Had the wide track Dana 44s, came with a probably a power, power um, what do they call those, the power lock, you know, limited slip in the back, Dana's, whatever it was it came with that I go yeah I'll trade you so I traded him and owned that for a year and I really liked it and I still kick myself of course now to be rusted away to nothing but I (laughs) I look back you know how you have those cars that you wish you didn't get rid of oh yeah one of them had a 360 an AMC 360 that I think put out probably 140 horsepower (laughs) <laughs> but but it, it was great I love that full-size Jeep and then I would go out exploring now I'm back in California now and uh working what happened was my dad there's a number of side stories you want you want to hear any of them sure of course <laughs> my dad owned the tool and die business that became a mold making business and he made all of the the injection molds and dyes for General Electric Iron Division, which used to be in Ontario, California. And dad always wanted me to come in with him in the business. Well, my dad and I had a rocky relationship in my teenage years. Dad was the same personality as me. So we. <laughs> Butted heads. Yep. Yeah. And I hated, I hated working there. But he put me through the mold makers apprentice program. So every summer and sometimes during school in my junior high and high school years, I was apprenticing at the shop. In fact, you know, that little button, if you've seen it on the Black and Decker irons that say up for steam. Yeah, that was my apprentice project. I had to design the button, draw the blueprints and build the mold the very first mold with the cavity cavities in it. And, uh, that was mine. And I still, once in a while, I'll see an iron for sale at home Depot or Lowe's or something. And it'll have my little buttons still on there. (laughs) GE, of course, took it and took the blueprints and built many more molds and then sold it to black and Decker who then took it overseas. But, uh, anyway, I was doing that. And, uh, you know, the mighty vac, The Mighty Vac Brake Bleeder, the little. Yeah, that was a guy named Ted Neward designed that. Ted worked for my dad and he designed this thing on his own time. And of course, it immediately took off. And Ted got big fast and he opened his own shop over on Archibald Avenue in Cucamonga. And he offered to my dad because he knew how much I hated it there. He goes, I'll take your son, let him finish his apprenticeship. You know, he can be a mold maker. And so dad asked if I wanted to. No, because I wanted out of the whole thing. Plus, by then I was going to college too, and I, I had other plans. Now I got drafted in 1972. I got my letter. They were taking the first hundred, you know, you received a number, right. and they were taking the first hundred, and my number was 11. Oh, so wow. I get this letter greetings, report to your nearest recruiter. So, I went to the ROTC building at the college, and we had Air Force and Army. And Air Force had these girls that were really pretty. They're called Angel Flight. And I go, I want there. <laughs> so, I signed up for ROTC, and because uh, I also was interested in flying, kind of liked everything. And, so, and I already knew how to fly. Uh, I had gotten a private pilot's license earlier in a little nothing airplanes and i never had enough money to fly so but i knew how and so i thought air force was a good fit i went through college i majored in communications and broadcasting i originally wanted to be a forest ranger but that was when the beginning of the green movement really got going and it seemed like the usda forest service was kind of the one of the epicenters of keep us off the land, you know, protect the forest from the evil people. And I didn't wanna be one of those guys. So I was playing in a band and to help make money, playing saxophone, top 40 band. And we'd have gigs on the weekends. And uh, I would uh, do my Air Force thing, do the college thing, barely. I mean, once again, barely eat through. I flunked English, by the way, every time. I graduate. This is 1976, okay? Vietnam is now over. Everybody hates the military, and including Congress. So there's hardly any funding now for pilots or anything. And me being me with my mouth, made lots of friends in the command structure of ROTC, which means I had none. <laughs> they they really didn't like me, which is not their fault. Believe me, all my life, I've had to, I have never learned to have a, put a break on the mouth, <laughs> but, but, but anyway, my dad always said he'd been in the Navy in World War II. And he always said, take care of your NCOs. They're the guys who are running the place. And so whenever, you know, Utah had 3.2 beer. And at BYU, the ROTC detachment, the officers were the professors there, the aerospace officers. And they were all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I guess that's the Air Force thought it was good to assign them. But the NCOs, that was just their, it was just their assignment. And they weren't Mormon at all. So whenever I'd go home to California, I'd bring back, even though I didn't drink it, I'd bring back real beer. Uh, 12 packs, whatever cases, you know, I, for the NCOs. Well, when it came time for assignments, when we graduated, I was the only one in the whole detachment that got orders to go to flight school. Yeah. And I think that was because I took care of the sergeants there (laughs) and they were good guys. But anyway, so I went to Williams air force base in Arizona and which is now gone. I mean, uh, it's, you know, decommissioned and, but went there for a a pilot training and uh, halfway through in those days uh, they'd see how you did. And then you got to choose if you were in about the top quarter of the class, you got to choose where your training was going to go. And I was there and so they said you could choose rotary wing, helicopters, transports or bombers or fighters. Well, I wanted fighters. Heck, of, of it. course. I'm not going to fly one of those other things. Afterwards, I kind of think back on that and go, it would have been nice to learn how to fly a big jet or, or helicopters. I could have used it later. So I went to fighters and uh, finished up. Well, now... It's 1977 and the Air Force is re- well, none of the branches are getting funding. And they came up with a furlough system uh, for especially for lieutenants, but there were too many of us and too many pilots. So they said, if you I had a six-year commitment after, after uh being commissioned. And uh, they said, if you want to get out, go in active reserve, we'll let you do that. And you won't have to be in the air. I mean, you'll be in the Air Force. I still have my commission, but you don't have to participate. Be active. Well, I wanted to fly, but I could see that even that, they were limiting us, you know, fuel and hours. Unless they needed you to do it, you had a hard time getting hours. And I could see the writing on the wall. So I said, "Okay, I'll take this furlough. So I got out. Well, now I have a degree in broadcasting, so I become a DJ uh, at a radio station. I'm playing in the band, too, again. Well, I'm seeing, and we're playing in nightclubs now in band, and we're splitting our money. There were eight people in the band. And I'm going, you know, this disco thing is going now. It's coming up. Saturday Night Fever wasn't out yet, but disco is hot. And I go, and I know how to be a DJ. Why am I splitting eight ways when i could be the guy i could be working all by myself so i was still working at the radio station but i quit the band bought dj equipment and started doing dances and parties and uh didn't know how to mix you know beat mix where one's gone and the next one comes in and you can't even tell i was just a dj hey all right now we're gonna you know It was stupid. I look back now and cringe, (laughs) but I didn't know any better. So I was this DJ and then I got a job at a disco and uh, in Provo, Utah. And uh, the other DJ was from New York and he knew how to beat mix. He goes, hey, man, this talking isn't where it's at. And he taught me a couple of songs and just, I mean, just showed me what to do. And then he quit. And so I perfected doing that, and uh, and then the mobile stuff. Just I sold the equipment because now I was working at clubs. Clubs paid way better, and it was it was steady. I moved to California and uh, moved back to California and uh, started working in some clubs. Uh, worked in one in, in Ontario, California, and then got a better job. Do you remember the drag racer named Gas Ronda? Yes. Yeah, he was he owned a club in West Covina, California. He had started oh. a really great club and he hired me and I worked there and I I got into Southern California DJ Association in Hollywood and you got all your records. They gave you records every week. I mean you didn't never bought any records. You know the 12-inch dance mixes and all and then just kept getting better jobs. And then I started winning competitions. I got a job at Carlos and Charlie's El Pravado on the Strip, and, uh, Sunset Strip, Sunset Boulevard. And right. met, I mean, everybody came there. Every star. I did parties for them. Alice Cooper was one of the partners in that club. But I did parties for Donna Summer. And I mean, you name it, Prince. I, I Prince came in all the time and would sit there and just talk to me and he didn't drink. He was a great guy. He just was quiet. Nothing like the Prince you saw, you know, and, but I, I got in a comp competition spinoff. And this guy came out from New York who had won the year before won best DJ and uh, with billboard magazine. And uh, we did a spinoff and I beat him. Next thing I know, I was voted best DJ in the United States by Goldberg Magazine. And they had a party for me in Capitol Records, the round building up in the penthouse and all. And it was kind of cool. But after that, it was downhill. I'd already reached what was kind of the pinnacle and it wasn't that much fun anymore. So we'll pause and go back to the middle of this period DJing air force gets in touch with me again we don't have enough pilots now <laughs> you know the military fe- feast or famine if you will come back to, to um reserves we'll promote you to captain and I go okay because I was missing that I would like to fly but since I was a reserve uh, I got f4s which were being phased out f4 phantoms right. and uh foreign powers were buying them for instance Germany and then my buddy who was in the Air Force Academy he went and got F-15s and that would have been better but still it was okay so I was in the Air Force Reserves and then flew F-4 Phantoms mainly teaching the Luftwaffe how to fly RF-4s and so I did that and got promoted to major And this is all through the rest of this period, even, uh, I mean, up into the mid 80s, I was in the Air Force. And uh, then I went to a physical checkup. You have to get a checkup with a flight surgeon to make sure you're not dying. Well, she said I was. She said that I had mild right ventricular fibrillation and they couldn't, in my heart, and they couldn't allow me to fly. And so then they offered me a desk job. And I said, no, no, but I get to come in the reserves and do it once in a while and sit at a desk. So I I got out and I haven't died yet, (laughs) but, but anyway, so now I'm a DJ and, and I'm, I'm really tired of being a DJ. Uh, yeah, I'm working at these big clubs. I had one night, I was working at a club called Studio One in Hollywood. And it went, it stretched a block and a half. It was one big warehouse building. And uh, I'm, a, I'm the DJ hung from the ceiling. And I'm up there playing. And I'm doing a mix and you're concentrating. It's just like playing golf. I mean, you're concentrating on that shot. Someone taps me on the shoulder. and I go, get out. And I'm still mixing and he taps me on the shoulder. and I go, <laughs> and I'm still, I'm holding this long beat mix. And you're having to drag your finger. This was before the Technics 1200 Mark II came out with a pitch control that you could, you had to drag and speed up the record yourself. So I'm working this thing and this guy keeps bugging me. Finally, I get done with the mix and I turn around. And I go, what? Oh, it's Rod Stewart standing there. And he goes, I just cut this acetate, which was what they used to do in vinyl records. They would do a pressing on, on acetate to see how it would sound, et cetera. And uh, he goes, I just did this song. Could you put it on? And we can see how the crowd responds. And there was, I don't know, 2,000 people. I mean, it was wall-to-wall dancers. And uh, I go, I don't know. Let me listen. And I, it was 120 beats a minute, which is where I was. So I go, yeah, I'll put it on. So I mixed into it and the people didn't leave the floor, (laughs) which is a good sign. And I, I, I mixed out of it. I go, yeah, that's, that's pretty good, Rod. And he goes, thank you. And he took it and walked off. It was duh. You think I'm sexy that song, but that happened a lot in the DJ days, but it was, it was fun then, but then it got tiring. And I wanted to do something else. So I'd always look for something since I worked at night, I could do something in the day. I became partners in a photo studio in La Quinta, California, down by Palm Springs. And our, our agency, I mean, our, our business had an agency contact with a Cliff Brown agency who had all the politicians. They had Ford, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, they had Walter Annenberg, the rich guy. They had uh, Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra. So I would get assigned to go out and shoot these guys with a camera, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'd go out and oh, we had the PGA, and uh, PGA West was just getting started down there. But um, real fast, I know we're supposed to be four wheeling here. No, it's all uh, this is. This
0: is very intriguing. Keep going. It's
1: great. Okay. <laughs> Well, Ronald Reagan. The very first time I was assigned to take pictures of him, he was speaking at the Eisenhower Medical Center, which had a small auditorium, and this was in Palm Desert. Ron, Ron and Nancy would always come down and and stay with the Annenbergs, which had who had a giant estate. He had his own golf course and everything. Well, anyway, um, so I go in. I have my bag. I have Hasselblad. There's no digital in those days. I have a Hasselblad camera. And I have the Hasselblad in my hand and I have my bag in the other hand, my camera bag and Ronald Reagan's speaking from this little podium. And it had about a two foot drop to what would be the orchestra pit, but it wasn't, it was just a concrete, uh flat floor up to where the seat started. This was a little auditorium. I come walking in the secret service guy sitting there. He goes, Hey, I go, "Yeah, hi. I'm going to take pictures." He goes, "Okay, I got to check your bag." I go, "Yeah, right. I know I'm not a bomber. I know there's nothing there and I didn't I it didn't cross my mind that they were serious." So I go walking out in front of Reagan, kind of bending over, and with the next thing I know, I'm tackled. And the camera goes scooting across the floor, the bag goes the other direction. Ronald Reagan stops his talk. And he goes, "Are you okay?" <laughs> I go, "Yes, Mr. President." <laughs> I, I retrieved the camera. Luckily, it wasn't broken, and I did my assignment. And I became friends with his Secret Service contingent after that. Although they always checked the bag, yeah. but I was friends with those guys after that. But it was it was funny <laughs> uh, to it was funny looking back on it. At the time, it was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> Some but of the
0: great experiences that you've gotten up to that point—it's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and and it was fun to meet these people uh, all during this time. I'm four wheeling, and I'm a member of a club called Saria Al Jamal Jeep Club, which is the Fast
0: Camels. Okay, Fast Camels.
1: Yeah, and the Fast Camels had started a, a jeep run shortly after World War II. Uh, all these guys came back from the war they bought old flat fenders and earl stanley gardner who wrote perry mason he was in the club i mean all of these guys It, it was really cool by the time i joined it earl stanley gardner was dead and and most of the men in the club were headed there they were very old a lot of them their kids some of their kids were in it and most of them weren't that interested. My friend was a guy named Steve Slankard. He, he owned uh, Indio. His dad owned Indio, Auto, Indio Speedometer. Yeah. And, and his dad and, and Steve had a falling out. So Steve went and started his own business called Indio Automotive and Electric. Steve knew his stuff. He was very good and a very good four-wheeler, jeeper. He had a CJ. We all had CJs. I mean, then it was, there wasn't much else. There was, well, there were scouts, early Broncos, uh, very few. We'd see an F, in the club, we had one guy with an F-150 short bed, and he was an excellent driver, but that thing was beat because we'd go through these narrow canyons and all, and he just pushed through, or he wouldn't make it and have to go around, but the rest of us had CJs. Um, Steve was a great driver, and his shop was a great place. He used to let me go down and, and mount tires and balance them, mount my tires and balance them myself, and I really liked it. But Steve then later on committed suicide, so that's sad. I, I had lost touch with him over the years, and then someone just told me that he's no longer around. It's very sad. He was a good guy, and he was a big mover and shaker in our – our world down there in the seventies and early eighties. So anyway, I'm in the club. Now also during the seventies, I'd gone out and gone four wheeling. I'd gotten involved with a little group, not a club, of Dick CPEC, the Shooks, Gene Shook. We have uh, Tom Smith, you know, we have, which is uh, CPEC Rancho Suspension and built And they went out four wheeling in the desert. And I went with them a few times now. I wasn't like a major member of this group. I just was able to somehow four wheel with them sometimes, but I knew them and I got to know the industry a little bit. So I'm still four wheeling. I I become president of the fast camel Jeep club. The run is still going on every year. It happened right after uh, TDS, you know, Tierra del Sol. Right. And we would, we made these, these old guys from the 40s had built trails out there over the mountains in the Oracopia Mountains, which is in between Indio California and Blythe, California. And there's a little place called Shireco Summit, which was a base for Patton in World War II when they did the California Training Center. Well, these guys went south of there, and they had put in these trails. They'd taken some of the old military roads that were there and then added to them up through the mountains. Great trails. And so we would pick every year which ones to use, and we'd have to bring the BLM rangers out, and they'd approve it. It was a lot of fun, but it got more and more political, as you know, through the 80s. Then – The year they were going to pass the California Desert Protection Act, the BLM came and asked the club to GPS all the trail coordinates. You know, first of all, hardly anybody had a GPS. GPS had just come out. Um, Barely had just come out. No, excuse me. They didn't even want, GPS hadn't really come. It was on its way, but they, they wanted it. Sorry, I'm old. Uh, but uh, we had topo maps they gave us, and they said, We want you to go out and mark the routes on all these topo maps because when this Protection Act comes out, we want to make sure your trails are open. Well, I didn't believe them. And I said, I don't think we should work with them on this. And the, the rest of the club voted me down they assigned the rest of the club even though I was president big deal they go well Phil you built that trail we called it the number two trail and it was in another group of mountains they go you give them the map for that and we'll go out and do our number one trail which was really a cool trail I go don't do it and they go no we're going to and you need to too because we don't want to make them mad at us well they did and I didn't and so when the protection act came out They took every section of land that that trail went through, even if it was just a corner, and they closed it. Now, my mountains were still open because I didn't give them anything, and it's still open to this day out there. I I so much want to go out there and rerun that. I've looked at it on Google Earth and can't hardly find. Only the climbs up the hills where they've eroded are still there. You can't see the trail. But anyway, so... Led the the last fast camel was 1990, and I led that, and uh, that was right before the Protection Act happened. I don't know when exactly, but it was in those years. We ran the fast camel cruise. We had a ton of people from all over, and then that was the last one. The club died out. The men, the older men, all all passed away, and the kids of those guys weren't interested anymore. Pretty much. But the club include, you know, Bill Bryan, he's in the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. He was an yes. old racer. There was a lot of guys in that. And I, I counted a privilege to know them and to pick up tips while I was learning how to drive off-road well from these old guys. I remember I had a Detroit Locker in the back in one of my 70s Jeeps, a Detroit Locker and a Power Lock in the front because who'd put a Detroit in the front? You couldn't steer I was told, so then all these old men would like get out and they'd crawl these hills. Our, our, our big thing was how elegant you could climb hills and how slow you could go without spinning tires. And they, they'd crawl, I, I think I'd do pretty well but my front would, would, you know, spin and these guys would just crawl up. And I go, how are you doing it? They go, we have Detroit's front and rear. I go, well, you can't steer. And they go, yes, you can. So I started putting Detroit's front and rear in my vehicles. And sure enough, yes, you could steer. And it was great. In fact, you could learn a little throttle. To this day, I can't tell you how to do it. But throttle feathering with a Detroit, when you crank the wheel, it'll actually pull you around. I don't, I can't explain how it is. It's just seat of the pants type thing. But all this stuff you learn from these old guys. I did. I learned I had become a director of entertainment for Marriott Hotels for the region. I hired the DJs and the bands. Really didn't like it, except it left me free to go four-wheeling at times, which I liked. I quit there and started a Jeep tour company in Palm Springs. Only it was, I was using her 88 Broncos, 1988. I'd borrowed the money and bought, I don't know, five or six broncos and we built seats in the back in a roll cage took that back half off on the top and then these company we we do the destination management people they have conventions and they'd hire us with so they go we need 104 seats and then they pay us for that so I didn't have enough seats so I bought a couple old cheap scramblers and put them put seats in them and then my uh, my manager called me one day and said, we had a fist fight. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, people were fighting to get in one of those scramblers. No one wanted in the Bronco. So I had I had my drivers pull everybody, and they all wanted to ride a Jeep. Forget the Broncos, even though the Broncos were more comfortable. So I <laughs> sold them all, bought a bunch of scramblers. We worked for about a year, and then I sold out to my competition, because you had to rely on the BLM every year for your permitting. And you never knew if you were going to be working next year or not. And I didn't like that. So I sold it to, to my competition and it was doing nothing. Well, I'd been friends with John Curry, who was one of my buddies. We'd met in the early 80s, maybe 83, 84. And he was my four-wheeling buddy john and i would go out we'd go out in the desert we'd meet and go four wheeling and he had a number of different vehicles um one of my favorites he had built a cj7 with a 454 chevy in it and uh all oh, that thing was clean and nice and we were running 33s and thought that was pretty cool because you know back earlier we were running like 10 15 armstrong true tracks and and before that, farm implement tires that were smooth with the grooves in them. But, boy, when 33s came out, and it, we were – that was nice, Dig tires. And one time we we uh, were going to do a run out at Shereyko Summit, and John come, uh, meets us out there and walks in the cafe. We were having breakfast, and he goes, look what I did to my Jeep. And it was this 454 CJ. And it's probably 87 because the YJ had come out. I go out and I go, whoa, what size are those tires? And they have 35s. (laughs) He had 35-inch BFG mud trains. I go, how did you fit those on? He goes, oh, that new YJ Wrangler came out with the flares that have room to trim in the back. And he put those on and trimmed it. So I immediately went home, got some YJ flares, and put 35s on my CJ. And then we were, that was something to have 35s. (laughs) We were four-wheeling all the time. And during my time as Jeep, when I had the Jeep Tour company, I had bought a Salvage CJ7. I had got Curry 9 inches front and rear. Now, I wasn't at the magazine or anything. And so all this stuff was (laughs) paid for with actual money. I drove that Jeep to Moab. Now, I was also in the Red Rock four-wheelers. I'd gone up in about 82 and met Dan Mick, who was had just moved there, like, I think in 79, 80, and he was the president of the Red Rocks. Now, they hadn't done anything from, like, the late 60s. They kind of had a town run on Easter, but it really – the club wasn't that active until George Schultz, uh, the senior – Yes. Yeah, And Dan had gotten together and they got the club going again. And in fact, Dan got hold of George's CJ7 and painted it up. And that was Dan's Jeep at the time I met him. Excuse me. No, he had a early, he had a a K5 Blazer uh, when I first met him. That wasn't locked up. And, you know, here I come from the California desert with all these guys. And he took me over to Potato Salad Hill and she was gonna show me Hell's Revenge. I've never seen it, never been to it. He goes, go up that. And I look, and I go, okay. Uh potato salad hill. He goes, Well, I'm gonna go around and and sit on top. I wanna get some pictures. So he goes around and I get tired of waiting for him. So I drive up the hill. No big deal. I have lockers front and rear. And I get to the top. Dan goes, You damn guys with lockers. <laughs> 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 But anyway, I've been coming off and on to Moab since 72 when we went down there to get Christmas trees for a a thing I was in in college up at the Y. We had gone down to cut Christmas trees to sell them and discovered that. So I've been going there, too, and off and on. But I didn't know any of these trails that the club had. So Dan took me out, showed me these different trails, about 80. You know, I don't know what year I started leading the Behind the Rocks Trail. But I did in the mid-80s and led it up until about 1990 or so. Phil Smith, a doctor in Cedar City, was my tail gunner for all those years. And he took it over when I quit and led behind the rocks after that for a number of years. I really enjoyed it in those days. I mean, Easter Jeep Safari, no corporate presence at all. It was a bunch of guys, four-wheeling. Uh, We had where Eddie McStiff's is in Moab. That was a barn. And we used to just meet at the barn and say, okay, I'm going to go to Moab or I'm going to go to Hell's Revenge. And who wants to go? And you raise your hand. The people would raise hands and then we'd take them out and lead them. Only big Saturday you would sign up for. But the rest of the week, you just went. And it was fun. Then it got, um, the barn got sold. Moab started getting popular. And this is in the 80s now. The magazines weren't paying a lot of attention to us, to uh, our, our four-wheeling, our exploring family club backcountry type stuff. It was getting more chrome shocks, bikini girls standing in the back of pickups. Uh, off-road, uh, Rick Simons, you know, he was still doing real four-wheeling in an in off-road magazine. But by and large, nobody else was. So we weren't getting any coverage. It didn't matter to us. We didn't know we needed coverage. It was a lot of fun, uh, four-wheeling in those days. Well, it gets to be 1990. I go in to the driver's meeting on Easter Jeep Safari. I'm leading behind the rocks, which, by the way, Gary Moulton, a member of the club who lived in Moab, the first year I did behind the rocks, I go, hey, Gary you know, I'm not sure I know every turn. Can we go up? Can you take me out there? And I'll just put little uh, surveyors tape at the turns so I can lead people. He goes, yeah. So he took me out there and we went out, ran behind the rocks. We get to potato or uh, Oh, for heaven's sakes, the main obstacle on behind the rocks, white knuckle, white knuckle hill. Great. We go down it, come back up, you know, fool around. And then he goes, now the trail goes out here to the county road, and then we go over to Pritchett and go down Pritchett. I go, okay. He goes, but there's another way I can show you, and it's we turn right at the bottom of the hill. So I go, yeah, let's look at that. It was down Hunter Canyon. Now, there wasn't even a road down Hunter Canyon. We, we just kind of trail broke through the reeds and the rushes through the canyon, up on a little shelf under an overhang, and uh, got that and i thought it was nice and and so i added that into the behind the rocks trail i just started leading the trail that way yeah it always cracked me up the years later i was coming up Pritchett, and i get to the top and here's a sign hunter canyon behind the rocks trail and i go ha all right <laughs> but but anyway um uh 90 came around had the drivers meeting there were some people that were really tree huggers. They were jeepers, but you know, very environmentally conscious. And I wasn't then, you know, I am more now, but I still don't think they were right. They wanted to keep us off of everything. Well, they gave, had the driver's meeting and they said, okay, now you have to take this porta potty with bags. And if anybody has to go, you let them go in this and then you carry the bags out. I go what? Don't let them carry the bag. Oh no, we have to make sure the bags don't get put anywhere. You have to carry them out. And I say, yeah, right. And then, uh, and then they have another guy get up, the land use guy, and he says, okay, now our trails are and the dirt road sections are getting wider and wider. So we don't only, we not only want you to stay on the trails, but we need you to stay in the center of the trails. And if you see anybody pulling to the side of a trail, you have to run up and tell them to move back. Well, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I just said, I'm not doing it. So Phil was sitting up a few rows ahead of me, Phil Smith, and I walked up. I go, do you want to lead this thing instead of me? He goes, well, yeah. So I go, okay, goodbye. And I quit. And I quit the club. And uh, now that is not the Red Rock four-wheelers of today. They are great. You know, and the people are involved and they're they're into the sport. And so this was just a few people in leadership back at that one little period. So please don't get me wrong. I'm not (laughs) anti-Red Rock. So now I'm just coming to Moab. And it gets, well, in fact, I went to that year. I was at Safari and Warren had a run, Warren Winch. Not like they do now, but this one was just some friends they put together. And Tom McMullen, you know, uh, who was McMullen Publishing, who had some magazines and his wife, Deanna, were there. And they were really good friends with Frank Curry. So I, I knew Tom from the 80s. And uh, Tom comes up, hey, Philly, going to go on this Warren run? I go, yeah. Got an extra seat? And I said, yeah, I'm by myself. He said, well, will you take Deanna? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah. I want to take some important people from Warren. So I go, okay. So Deanna gets in. We run Hell's Revenge, and she's questioning me about my wife, my family, about my life. And I go, stop. <laughs> what do you care? And then, uh, but I I answered her, and then that was it. It was fun. We had her, you know, the run, and went home. Two weeks later, Tom calls hey, how would you like to be the editor of my uh, of a four-wheel drive magazine? And I go, oh, Tom, I don't know, I flunked English. Every time I took it, I flunked it, because I didn't listen. He goes, oh, we don't care about that. We want enthusiasts. We find we hire journalist majors, English majors, and they don't know anything about it that the enthusiast can see right through that. He goes, you had that photo studio. I know you can take pictures. We can fix your writing. Do you want to try it? I go, well, I would like to, but I'm scared. And he goes, listen, we have a magazine we're killing. So if you don't do well, it's going to get killed anyway. Um, (laughs) And I go, okay, I'll try it. And then a word on that, what happened was, as I said, most of the magazine, except off-road, and I believe by then Rick Simons was gone. So all of the magazines were doing chrome roll bars, flags in the back, bikini girls standing in there. And McMullen had a magazine called Four Wheel Drive Action, and it had started out pretty good. And then he started telling the editor what they had to run, the editors. And he went through a number of different editors. And Tom liked women in his magazine. He loved them. In fact, right before I started, they had a picture of two girls in bikinis, all soaked up with a tool chest and a, and a jeep, and they were washing it. No <laughs> one cared about the jeep; <laughs> it was just the girls. And they were—they didn't have any advertising anymore. In fact, the only advertising in the magazine were uh, carryovers. Like they said, if you buy this 12-month full-page four-color ad in Truckin' Magazine, we'll put you for free in four-wheel drive action. I think they changed it by then to four-wheel drive SUV or something. And so there was no advertising, and they were going to kill it. And so I came in, and and I said, well, Tom, if you want me to be the editor, these bikini girls have got to go. No. I go, yeah, Tom, we're going to do real four-wheeling in this magazine. Well, I don't know. Well, Ken Yee, who was Tom's partner, calls me up and he goes, Phil, you got to understand the girls are wonderful. They get 5,000 more readers every time girl on cover. Uh, Ken was from China or Hong Kong or Taiwan or somewhere. And he was a good guy and he was a smart guy too. But I didn't agree with him on this. I go, I don't care. I'll, if you want me to be the editor, I don't want these unless they're driving the jeep. You know, I don't want them just gratuitously. This isn't you know put on the cover. This is not Sports Illustrated. It's certainly not Penthouse. You <laughs> know, and they and then Tom talked him in Ken into letting it happen. And I started out and I wrote my first editorial that said we were changing the focus of the magazine to real four-wheeling to family club and just backcountry exploring and that probably wouldn't be going to events because everybody else would cover events and we just want to give you trail riding and and rock crawling and whatever uh, which was not rock crawling that was 10 years later the very first well it came out the first issue And, oh, I changed the name to Four Wheel Drive and Sport Utility Magazine. Tom said there had to be a Sport Utility in there because they were so big. I changed the logo. I did the logo. I designed it. The very first magazine came out and the ads started coming in. The marketing girl for Warren was a woman. And she said, I was so glad to see this, that you're going to support women as long as they're doing what you're doing. But she goes, I refuse to do it with that, with the bikini girls and things. So they bought full page ad. All these other people came in and said, wow, no one's doing this. Well, Tom told me that it'd probably take a year to be profitable. And for any man, he'd started many magazines. Well, we were profitable within six months. And we were never giant like four wheel and off road or four wheeler. But we were a good niche publication for that family club and backcountry four wheeling. So that's what we covered. I had some good guys kind of first, it was only me, and there's a number of names like Alan Phillips wrote for me. Well, my name is Philip Allen Howell. <laughs> so Alan Phillips was me. And uh, there's a number of different uh, nom de plumes, you know, that when it was really only me. I didn't have a buyout for freelancing. Once in a while, David Freiberger would write for me. He was not at the magazines yet, but he was a freelancer. Everything David does turns to gold. I mean, he's he's awesome. <laughs> but uh, but really, hardly anybody wrote. No, no one wrote for me. And then they gave me a buyout as things got better, and I hired Mark Workmeister. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember him. Jake oh, Polisky. yes um all good guys then they let me hire Trent Trent Riddle now Trent had uh had a cup comp- he was building a, a dual battery system and I had done a story on his dual battery system and uh got to talking with him and I go this guy would be good you know for hiring to be an associate editor and they finally gave the okay and I did and of course Trent was great and um Later on, Kevin McNulty came on board, and he was great. Uh, You know, people like to say that we had competition because we weren't all the same company back then. Uh, In fact, John Stewart, who was the editor of Four Wheeler at the time, now he's a vice president at SEMA. But uh, he came up to me at at the first SEMA after our issues had started coming out. And he came up to me and said, Phil, we applaud what you're doing, but you'll never make it. No one will advertise in this magazine. You have to do parts installs. You have to, you have to show stuff that you've quit showing, the chrome and the, the people like it. He goes, but it won't happen. But we do applaud your efforts. Two years later, he came up to me and said, wow, do I have to eat my words? Because <laughs> by then, they had started doing trail riding and all. And, of course, uh, Payway wasn't there then at, at uh, four wheel and off. Well, at, or at JP. Remember, when he first got hired, they hired him for JP. And none of those guys were there. Rick, Rick it was, uh, I think he owned a business called Republic Off-Road in Phoenix, if he didn't own it he was he managed it but all of us it's like we got along uh, even though we were competitors people would say oh yeah those guys said this or that no they didn't you know we all pre- i can't think of anybody in our industry that while i worked there who was bad who was a jerk every one of them had their own area of expertise rick you give them a flat fender in Pieces, every single piece, he'd have it built probably within a week. <laughs> Maybe not, but, but I mean, he, he liked one time we were four wheeling and Rick turned around and I go, what happened? Oh, it was, uh, up Eldorado. Yeah. And, uh, I go, what happened, Rick, Did the trail get too hard for him? He goes, no, my frame broke in half. <laughs> Yeah, which it did on his flat fender, It broke in half and Ned Bacon and him had gone back to town. Well, they somehow got him back to town. But I asked him, because he was quite happy about the whole thing. I go, do you like working on this stuff more than you like driving up these trails? And he goes, well, you said it, not me. But I think he enjoys working on things like that. Me, I'd rather be driving. I can work on it, but through most of my tenure at at the magazine, I would get a shot to, like, John Bundrant at All Pro for the Toyotas, a number of different Jeep places, Uh, well, of course, Curry. It was funny, and when the YJ came out, the fuel-injected YJ in 91, uh, that 4-liter was nice, but I wanted to put a Chevy Corvette engine in the YJ, an LT1. I I asked John Curry if we could use Curry Enterprises because they had hoists and nice shop. And he goes, no. I go, really? He goes, yeah, if you want to get me an LT1 also and I can build my YJ, he goes, I'll let you use the shop. So I said, I don't know. I'll ask GM. So I called up GM and they said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll give you two complete drivetrains, the LT1 and a 4L. I think it was a 4L60 back then, automatic. They sent one of their engineers, Mark McPhail, out to oversee the project. So John did two-thirds of the work on my Jeep first while I took pictures and wrote about it. I did some of the work, but John was two-thirds. Mark McPhail was probably another quarter, you know, maybe, I don't know, and I was the rest. That Jeep turned out perfect. I mean, and it was like GM did it. And then John got his done with Mark McPhail's help. Now remember, GM engineer, he got everything working, including the VATs and, you know, the vehicle anti-theft system wouldn't let it run. So he reprogrammed it. It was just like a Corvette, you know, only it was in a Jeep. (laughs) So I took it to the California uh, Air Resources Board referee. And now I'd already called them before we started the project to make sure that it would be okay to do this. And they said, oh yeah, as long as you have all the smog equipment on it. I go, okay. So we take it to the referee, comes out. He goes, your Jeep put out one tenth what we allow. He goes, that is a clean Jeep. I go, fantastic. He goes, but we can't approve it. I go, what? He goes, no, this year, Corvette, engine uh Chevy brought the Corvette LT1 into California on a waiver and because they did that we can't allow that engine to go into anything else in California i go, what well I have this expensive Jeep now I can't register it so John goes I'll try it so John takes his into the referee another referee and same thing and then we get called by Californians say Okay, now there are two Jeeps here that looked identical, uh, different VIN numbers, but we want you to know they're in our system. And if you try to register them again in California, we will impound them. And uh, I, okay, so I put mine up for sale and I sell it to a a guy comes from Fresno, California. and, And I tell him, I go, you can't register this. He goes, that's okay. I have a home in Reno too. I go okay. Well, register Nevada, not California. About a month later, here comes a knock on my front door. I open the door. Here's a highway patrolman, and he's with a guy with a with another highway patrolman, but in a jumpsuit, a blue jumpsuit. And I look outside, and there's a truck with a trailer on it. And I go, "Hello." He goes and asked who I was, and I who told him. He goes, "Yes, okay." You tried to register your vehicle again, a 1991 YJ Jeep Wrangler, and uh, we're here to impound that vehicle. I go, oh, I sold that vehicle. I showed him the bill. I, I had a copy of the paperwork. and I go, but the guy said he was in Nevada. He lived in Nevada. He goes, well, it was the attempt was made, let's see, in Central California. I go, well, it wasn't me. And can you give me the guy's information there? Well, I couldn't tell him I didn't have it because I just showed him. So I gave him the information. Then I got a hold of the guy. Go, you better get that Jeep out of the state. Why did you try to register it? He goes, well, I was pretty sure that I'm in Central California. You were in Southern. So I go, well, they're coming to get it. So off he goes. And they never did catch him. He did finally register it in in Nevada but some of these air resources board things Utah's a lot better on that anyway then rock crawling we get up through the years at the magazine and in 1992 I was talking to Bob Hazel now Bob Hazel had a company called Sports in the Rough and I know you know Bob right and they did all kinds of different adventure stuff with four-wheel drives and other things and Iron Man stuff and and I was telling Bob about this idea I had on a trials for four by fours, and uh, and he's, wow, that's cool. And this is '92. We were, I believe, we were in Moab, and I was talking to him at a car wash. <laughs> but anyway, so that was it. Well, 1997 rolls around, '98. Bob calls me. He goes, remember that thing you were talking to me about, about that motor or the motorcycle trial, the four by four trials? I go, yeah. He goes, you want to do that? And I go, well, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'll use sports in the rough. And, you know, because I already have the company. He goes, and we'll do this. We'll partner. So I go, OK. So Bob didn't have much idea on how to do it. So I got to thinking and worked out a scoring system and how it would work and all. And we decided Bob lived in the Carolinas somewhere and I lived in California. So let's, let's do it in Las Cruces, New Mexico. That's in the center. <laughs> so we went there and the club there was very helpful and uh, showed us a couple of canyons and I chose this canyon to run and me and the Curries went out and we set up the course and Bob Bob did kind of paperwork with the sponsors and all. Um, he was doing that. I was doing the course layout and and then we had a great turnout that first year. I, I were you there? I think you no, might
0: have no oh. I didn't I didn't I made it to the the one in Johnson Valley was the first okay. rock and roll I
1: went to. That was the second one I'll tell you about that in a minute. So we had that. it worked great you know everything worked well except one thing bob thought that although all the participants should not have any stickers on their vehicles that we had to require all the vehicles all the participants to use the, the event sponsor stickers on the vehicles yeah. well i told him well i don't agree with this because these guys a lot of them have got parts for the exposure and like you know, ARB isn't going to get much exposure if they're in somebody's diff. You know, they need to have it on the vehicle. That's why they gave the parts to these guys in exchange for the marketing exposure. No, no. And we talked about it and Bob Bob said, okay, we'll go ahead and not not require them to take their stickers off. Well, at the event, at registration, they were required to take off their stickers. I didn't agree with Bob on that. And after the event, we had decided to go to Johnson Valley for the next one, which was right by where I lived. And I got the permit and had the permit in hand. And then I talked to Bob, I go, now Bob, what about this sponsorship deal? We still need to get by that. And he goes, I really feel strongly I need to support the event sponsors, which was a true thing. I go, well, yeah, but." We need to let them have, you know, their own stickers on there too, the competitors. And he said, no, because what if they compete against our event sponsors? For instance, BF Goodrich was a sponsor, you know, the main sponsor and somebody's running Toyo. You know, they Bob didn't feel like it was right for them to have the stickers on. So I go, well, we need to agree to disagree and we'll split up. Well, Bob got quite angry at me as did all his buddies in the industry. And uh, and I felt kind of bad. I mean, this was just two different opinions. It wasn't that one guy was bad and the other guy was good. You know, it was two different opinions. So I told Bob, listen, you can have Johnson Valley. I'll give you the permit and you can just continue with that. And I will go somewhere else. Well, I had friends in Farmington. We'd been four-wheeling there forever and Jim Peterson and Phil Collard. So I go over there and I talk to Phil. And I go, you want to help me lay out a rock crawl competition here? Yeah, sure. So we did. We laid out the, the competition there together. Phil was great. And then I found out from a friend that there were a couple other friends of mine who were thinking of starting another comp. A competitive rock crawling series. Now, I had been just breaking even on this thing, and I had Goodyear had said they were going to be the name sponsor, but they never sent the check, and so I was like, oh, I'd rather be Four Wheeling than running this competition." So I called up Ranch Pratt, who who was starting the the was thinking about starting another event. And I asked if he was interested in just taking mine over. And he said, yeah. So that happened. That became our the ARCA series. Uh, you know, the rest is history on that. And Phil, I think, stayed with them and helped them lay out courses all throughout the West. And I kind of backed out of it then. I see that my scoring system is still used in places. <laughs> but uh,
0: The only place it's really, I mean... Besides Jesse Haynes putting on Supercrawl now, um, I'm the only one really doing, you know, a national series. And I'm still doing an East-West and a, and a national championship event. And then there's a small series up in the Northeast. And then once in a while, there the Idaho X-Rocks does a series. But otherwise, it's, We Rock is the only one that's still still going. Well, it was exciting
1: but I went back to my roots of four wheeling and right. And I mean, it's still in the magazine, you know, we're doing four wheel drive. And then at, at, in 2004, they came to me and said, we want you to leave four wheel drive and go to off-road magazine and see if you can bring off off-road off-road wasn't doing bad. It wasn't dirt sports yet, but it, it just was kind of level and they wanted to see the numbers come up. I went there and I didn't do any better than any other editor who was there. It didn't go down, it didn't go up, but I had kind of turned it from racing. I went back to trail riding with trucks and Jeeps and whatever. And I remember at SEMA in 2006, I went and ran into some industry people and, hey, Phil, what are you doing now? I go, I'm the editor of Off-Road Magazine. Oh wow. Oh, we don't read that one. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> so anyway, but it didn't work out. And but I was still there. And then they called me and said, we'd like you to go back to Four Wheel Drive and Sport Utility. And if you don't want to, you're fired. And I go, oh, <laughs> I want to. I want to go back there. So uh, and they put, was it Mike Finnegan? I, I can't remember who they put in as Jared Jones. I think they put him in as editor there and of course did a great job, went back to the racing and, and, and other things that they covered. And then when they bought dirt sports, they rolled it together. And of course it's it whatever happened to it after the big bloodletting, I don't know, but, <laughs> but those guys did a great job, but I'm back at four wheel drive and was there until 2014 and I did lots of projects. I can't even remember all the project vehicles I've owned. And that was one thing. When we first started doing this,
0: you know, I'm not rich, and <laughs> you are only in name and personality.
1: <laughs> but but anyway, um, I couldn't afford to buy these vehicles uh, without the money from the vehicle before. And my magazine wasn't big enough. You know, a lot of the bigger magazines would get dollar vehicles from Ford or Jeep or Chevy, whatever, Toyota. They'd give them dollar vehicles to build up, and then they had to write about them for a period of time in the magazine. Well, I didn't get any of those. So I would get these projects done, and then to do the next one, I'd sell them. And uh, I remember John came to me. John Curry goes, you know, we supply your axles a lot, but we're kind of mad. You you sell these vehicles the minute you get them done. I go, yeah, and I explained, I can't afford to do the next one. And the magazine doesn't buy the projects. It's me. Oh, okay. And they were okay with that. And I remember Tom Wood came to me, Tom Wood's custom drive shaft. And he had worked for six states. He was working for six states here in Utah doing the same thing, building drive shafts. And Tom was trying to figure out whether he should go on his own, but it's hard to give up a paycheck and benefits. And I told him, if you go on your own, I will write about you all the time because I loved his drive shafts. I mean, he he had participated and he did. And of course, that's history, too. We wrote about him and he he became giant. And uh, but Tom once came to me, he goes, you know, what about this? I build you drive shafts and then you sell the vehicle. And after we get the magazine coverage, and I go, well, here's the deal. Tom told him I couldn't afford to do the next one without selling it. And I go, so here's what I can do. You can build me one set of drive shafts and I'll promise you I won't sell this vehicle, but you'll get no more press for any more projects because I can't afford them. Or I can build it, sell it, and then get the next one and we'll do it again. Yeah, that's what I'd rather have. So. <laughs> That's why I always had so many different vehicles. I was always trying to finance the next project. Although now that I'm semi-retired, things haven't changed that much. I have a new Ford Ranger right now that I'm building uh, to appear in four-wheeler magazine. Nice. Uh, yeah, it, it is, it's fun, but I've gone back to kind of f- exploring. I love to go out and where does that road go? And, and go on it and see where it goes find a ghost town, find, you know, ruins, find beautiful scenery. I mean, that's what drives me now. And I like to write about it still, although the venues are less, you know, there isn't as many places now, but uh, to write about that stuff.
0: Especially in print.
1: Yeah. In print. Excuse me.
0: Yeah. And there, there is still, there is still a market for print. Crawl magazine, our magazine for low, they're more niche magazines, you might say, but they don't have all that corporate overhead that killed the other magazines.
1: Overhead is a nice word for it. <laughs> I mean, since it's a family show, we won't say what, the corporate what it really is. <laughs> they killed them. I mean, they killed the magazines. You look at what John Herrick has done with Crawl and with Trails and, and you've done for low and all, and they're Fantastic looking. They have good paper, good photography, good writing. It really is good, and people still want them. Yes. But like my company just kept cutting it, and they the manage the upper management knew nothing about what we were doing, and they themselves thought print was dead. Um, They started making the paper so thin that the four-page full-color ads, when they printed it, the paper would crinkle because it would get wet from the ink. It was so thin. You know, Discovery Media bought them, bought the company. They kept four-wheeler and Hot Rod and what? One other. Hot Rod, four-wheeler, and oh, for Motor Trend, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I think it's the Motor Trend Group. But, <laughs> and Ken Brewbaker's still at four-wheeler, still doing a good job. They need better paper. I, I found a four-wheeler on the stand. I have a story in the latest four-wheeler on a Jeep I built and I went to find one barely it's so thin your guys yours and and John's magazines look so good and I want to thank you for that too for keeping that going
0: I appreciate it I I really appreciate that when we decided to to purchase for low it was it was a new magazine it was at issue 17 was a combined with the old owner and us but he had only started printing, I think, with issue thirteen. But oh, wow. it was such a small print run that he had really no marketing, no magazine, no, you know, no advertisers, right. and not very many subscribers. I think a hundred or less. We took it, and and I knew what I wanted. And luckily, my wife is a Shelley's a great editor. And my background in college was commercial photography. So we just kind of combined our skills. But being in the industry so long as an event promoter and being all over the place, you know, so many people have just jumped on board and become contributors that it's allowed us to grow the magazine slowly, but still put out a quality product and not have any overhead, you know, I mean, they're, yeah. the only overhead is the printing and the distribution and the distribution is all, you know, by subscription or we hand them out free. Yeah. So the marketing partners are still getting, you know, our advertisers are still getting the magazine run out that they want, you know, the coverage. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's guerrilla marketing at its finest.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. I guess that's about, about it. Well, got. You now, we're way over time. No, we're uh, not over time.
0: I, there is nothing called overtime.
1: Okay. It's funny. I I like to think I was kind of a mover and shaker in the industry. I I feel like I brought trail riding back to the to the fo- and in the magazines and and uh, of course everybody else jumped on it. And some did it better, you know, after me. But but you know, I feel like I at least steered the ship so it was heading back that way and then the rock crawling thing and which very few people remember you know who I, I read a lot of articles about rock crawling and they talk about this guy started it this guy started it well I didn't see any of them around no
0: nope. <laughs> I'm the <laughs> one fact, that
1: knew <laughs> yeah that's right you were the one you you, <laughs> you always mentioned that and I appreciate it but um, there's so many others. I mean, so many other unsung people or people who are not known as well. I mean, Frank Curry, holy cow. I mean, what an awesome man. And, and he did so much behind the scenes to help the sport come forward. And then his boys, I didn't know. You know, we all have to learn stuff as we go along that one CJ seven I built and drove it to Moab from California and back without a top on. I loved that trip. And, but it wandered all over the road and I knew enough. I knew how to undo the lock nut on the Saginaw box and adjusted a little tighter. And I did that. And it got worse. I'm wandering all over and South of Vegas, the semis had put ruts in the road in the highway <laughs> and I hit those ruts and be, Oh, And I don't know what's wrong with this thing. It's wandering. And I drove it back down to Curry's one day for lunch. And Ray Curry looks under the vehicle and goes, man, this thing must wander all over the place. I go, it does. How do you know? He goes, look at the caster. And uh, it turned out I didn't have any uh, positive caster in it. And of course, those were leaf spring days. So actually... I uh, paid Curry to cut the the C's off and rotate them back, and uh, and I got a little caster. But and it was cured, and then I knew about castor after that. But it's funny how in our earlier days how we had to learn this stuff. But Ray took one look when I just sweated over it and just hated it. Why this thing must wander all over the place? <laughs> And then John, of course, John Curry, he he is a wonderful driver. We competed against each other, you know, just friendly when we're out on runs uh, all the time. We like to crawl the obstacles, and then we'd like to race as fast as we could go in between. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he's such a good driver. Gerald Lee, you know, Gerald? Oh, yeah. I mean, Gerald, what a great guy.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh,
1: all these industry guys, um, Tony at Genrite. I remember he called me, I was living in Hurricane and he called me up and he said, hey, Phil, and he introduced himself. He goes, I have this gas tank that I'm making for Jeeps. He goes, and I can't get anybody to talk to me at any of the magazines. And I'm coming through and I have, can I stop by your house and show you this tank? I am yeah, sure. What can it hurt? We well, brought this beautiful stainless tank. It was, uh, he was calling it the EXT uh, extended range tank. And it was beautiful and it would bolt right in. And so I go, I have to take pictures of this. So I took pictures and did a little product uh, review on it in the magazine. But he said he couldn't get anybody else to listen to him. So I called the guys at the other magazines and said, You got to look at this thing. This is great. It was wonderful to be able to help him get going, you know John Bundran at All Pro. What a great guy! And then he got in with Nelson, and they built Tiny, and uh, that that was what an awesome buggy that thing. I still think it is. I mean,
0: I see it every year. It comes up and competes in Texas. Oh, does it? Yeah. Okay, in Mexico, it comes up from Mexico from Toledo however they say it. And yeah. they come up uh, and compete with us every March. Cool. Yep. And then,
1: I mean, you know, the problem with naming names is you forget someone and they get upset, but <laughs> I can't think of one guy or girl in the sport that I can't think anything negative about them. Even the guys who we had our differences you know I, oh yeah i just i can't think of anything bad about them they were great in their own way and they've they helped our sport so much uh rod hall which i can't say anything bad about at all but do you remember that i had gotten in with am general uh, back in the early 90s when they first brought the h1 out the hummer they came to moab and i was still leading behind the rocks, not on Big Saturday, because Phil had taken that, but I was leading it during the week. And I took these H1s out with Jim Armour, the president. He was trying to get up some hills, and Jim was a pretty good driver. And he would do it, and then he'd have his corporate driver try it, and he'd spin out and not do it. And So he goes, Phil, do you want to try it? And I go, yeah. And I locked out, went right up White Knuckle Hill. And without even trying, he goes, oh, I want – you to be driving me one of these. So they started giving me a Hummer every year. I'd get it for a year, and then they'd replace it with another one. But when they were courting Rod Hall the race for him, I got a call and said, Phil, would you like to come with us to Baja with Rod Hall? He wants to go and try out the H1s down there. I was, yeah. So <laughs> down we went, and I would gotten pretty cocky. By then I thought I was pretty hot. I was a good driver. I mean, John Curry was a good driver and me and him were 50, 50, and I was good. And I said, if I got the same vehicle as these racers, they don't have a chance. <laughs> you know, well, we go down there and, and they give me an H one rod an H one. And then they had some engineers and their corporate drivers and a couple other ones. You know, we, we take off on the Baja 500 race course for that year. And within minutes, we've left the AM general guys. I mean, they're way back, but Rod is in front of me and I'm driving. Now I'm driving as hard as I can using all the skill. Now these Hummers weren't very fast. They had 6.2 diesels, but I'm driving as hard as I can. And there's Rod's dust within Ten minutes all I can see is his dust and I'm driving as hard as I can and (laughs) I'm ahead of of me (laughs) and so in 20 minutes we had a little radios he's out of radio range and I'm driving as hard as I can so all of a sudden I go you have to rethink your abilities Phil (laughs) I wasn't as hot as I thought I was (laughs) <laughs> but we get to right before Mike's Sky Ranch on the east side, you know, it's all rocky and kind of to climb up to the, the last climb there to the ranch. Here's Rod beetled on rock. He would high centered and, and his, every time he'd stick it in gear, he'd go forward, he'd turn one way and he'd put it in reverse and he'd pivot the other way. So I, now I kind of knew rock crawling. All right. You know, And so I, just crawl right by him and get to Mike Sky Ranch before he did. <laughs> now, now remember, he had been so far away from me, so far ahead of me that he was out of radio range. So just because I kind of knew how to pick a line, maybe a little better in that one section. Well, they come up to me at lunch, said, Phil, we can't have you drive that Hummer. Oh, what? You know, no, Rod's really mad that you came into Mike's sky ranch before him and i go he was killing me he was miles ahead of me getting hung up a little bit doesn't count he he is way better driver he has no reason to be mad they go well he's a little upset so we're going to have you get in the passenger seat we're going to have uh one of our drivers drive you afterwards after lunch okay so we get in the hummers after lunch and the road down to um oh anyway from mike sky ranch down to the pacific side there's a little town down there i can't remember its name but it's graded it's really nice right but it's cut into the side of the mountain and there's cliffs so rod takes off as usual well this guy the corporate driver thinks he's like me <laughs> he thought he was <laughs> as good as rod Hall which was not true for in either of our cases, but he's trying to keep up with Rod. Well, once again, Rod's gone. I mean, we come around a few corners and you can't even see his dust anymore on the road. He's so far ahead, but this guy's trying to keep up and I'm getting a little worried because there's a big cliff on the side of the road and this guy's going as fast as he can. And then I think, well, don't worry about it. He doesn't want to die either. But then we get to this one big sweeping corner and the Hummer starts to slide, broad drift. And I go, oh, no. So I he floors it, but it's a 6.2 liter diesel with no horsepower, so he doesn't have anything to pull out. So I go, this thing's going over and this toad's going to, Heavy toads gonna crush us in here. So I put my hands under my legs and I laid on the center that giant motor cover center console. And I lay down on that, and sure enough, we go off. And the first about 10 feet is vertical, and then it hits a hill that's probably about like this. I mean, and so we fly off when we hit that hill part, starts to roll, and we roll and roll, and we roll to the bottom of the hill, and we had a cooler in the in ours that had rod like to drink milk and he had a half gallon of milk in this cooler and the cooler came open and the container bounced off my head and knocked me out and broke on my head so i'm covered with milk i'm just coming to at the bottom of the hill hummer's sitting there it hadn't caved in believe it or not The roll cage that was in it had been designed by one of the engineers and one of the other vehicles he came up and said wow i'm glad it worked (laughs) (laughs) well me too but anyway all four tires were flat and the windshield was broken the driver goes oh let's see if we can get the central tire inflation to pump them up again well sure enough he was able to pump up the tires we drive down the wash to where there's a little less of a hill and we were able to get back up on the road. Next thing we know here comes Rod about hundred miles an hour back up the road. What happened to you guys? And, and they go, Oh, we went off trying to chase. Him. He goes, Oh, and he looks, he goes, Oh, that's where Walker went off the last race. <laughs> Come on, let's go. And he turns around and just takes off again. <laughs> and I, and, but that was a lesson to me that, rod hall is a good driver (laughs) was a good driver so is walker evans walker and i have a few interesting times in fact he called me and said you want to go out to johnson valley with me and i go sure what for he goes i'm getting interested in this rock crawling thing and i know you kind of had something to do with it and i go yeah i'm not in it you know but he goes well take me out there show me what's up so we went up uh Uh, the sledgehammer was done and jackhammer was only half finished didn't have the second half it only came in at the mailbox there but took him out there randy came along uh, and walker and randy just followed us and it was great it was so much fun to four wheel with him and watch him decide whether he wanted a rock crawl or not that was fun Walker, I mean, wish happy birthday and he wishes me a happy birthday. That's about it. We've, since I've moved up to Utah and I mean up to central northern Utah, you know um, kind of lost touch. but Walker is great. Oh Rod on that later on that Hummer uh, adventure in Mexico, I can never sleep. I've never slept well. So I'm, I'm awake half the time that night. And uh, I hear noises out by the vehicle. So I go out there and I'm looking in the vehicles and here's someone in rods and the vehicle rod was driving. And I pound on the window cause it, it's the guys kind of laying in there. And I thought it was somebody in there working on something that's unbolted or something. I pound on the window and The guy turns around and I shine my flashlight and it's Rod. I go, what are you doing? And he goes, I don't know. I like to get to be one with the vehicles that I'm thinking of driving. So I just thought I'd come out here and sleep in it all night long. (laughs) Okay, see ya. (laughs) And he is a character. And every once in a while I'd get a, a message on LinkedIn from Rod, and it would just be, "How's Phil?" and I'd answer him, "Oh, I'm fine, doing good. How are you?" He wouldn't answer back, <laughs> but every once I just send a message. It was an interesting <laughs> relationship. But what great guys all those guys are and were.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, anyway, and then also before I go, I'd like to mention the guys who I know that like who helped with our projects, guys like John Bundrant. And uh, who who was the Toyota guru still is, but I guess he's not involved with All Pro anymore. I don't know. Nope.
0: No, he sold he sold it.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then uh, up here we have, of course, Milt Thompson, who's like the guru of being able to fix anything with anything. I mean, if you break and out in the middle of nowhere and you're with Milt, you're okay because yes, he can fabricate and make up stuff and I mean he's great and then of course there's uh John Williams uh, impulse off-road and he he's you know fantastic he knows the vehicles inside and out especially Jeeps and Fords and his brother Nate one of the finest fabricators I've ever seen as is Jeremy Thompson Milt's son do you know Jeremy yes yeah he now runs Eminence Off-Road, his, his own business. He's split off from his family. And, and uh, if you can get in with Jeremy, you've done well. You, you'll know your vehicle's going to be good. The trouble with him is he's one guy, and he has so many people around the country that, that want to use him that he's, you know, busy. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Then there's Johnny Roca down in Southern Cal I mean, all these guys, and so many others. I mean, Jason Polly Shannon Campbell. You know, it, it's just Ned Bacon. Guys, I'm so sorry that I haven't mentioned you. You know, uh, other ones. I mean, our club. We were in, our club. Did you met? Do you remember our club? Oh it yes. Was, the letter R. That was we we started a club, and it was uh, Walker was in it. Harold Off, Pat Grumillion, uh Joel. Randall, of course, had uh, Morris Hansen, uh, John Curry was in it. Um, the guys from Nebraska, like Rich Hudson, they were all friends. Joel and, and do you know Morris? Morris Hansen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're they all buddies in Nebraska. They're all the Nebraskan guys. Rookie came in later. I mean, once they started competing, Jeff, I mean, what a natural driver he, he is and was. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Chris Durham you know Chris and I didn't interact that much he was in different circles uh, as was I and we'd see each other once in a while and I I was spotting people up Pritchard one day and here comes Chris and, and they go hey get this whoever was down you know helping people up to the point where I was said hey help this guy get up there I go no I go that's Chris Durham he doesn't need any help from me (laughs) And then he leaned out. He goes, yeah, you can help. (laughs) So I helped spot him, but I still don't think he needed any. (laughs) But, you know, his low center of gravity Jeeps, we were all building them. They seemed to get higher and higher as we wanted more clearance. And then Chris built these ones with no lift at all that worked great. It inspired me to build a couple of LCG Jeeps. My trouble was, as I like to go fast, too, there was no up travel. At least in the ones I built, maybe Chris had better engineering, but mine would bought, would top would bottom out. Excuse me, right away as soon as you hit stuff going fast. I went back to kind of happy medium, just a little bit of lift. But Chris really influenced the industry with a lot of his designs. His his hood and his um, well, no, that he came out with a hood and no fenders thing, and then Shannon Campbell built that, and I don't know if. Chris and Shannon talked or anything, but Shannon had that great Remember the hood and the, the fenders, the high, the fender? high lines. Yep. Yeah. the High lines. Ah, oh, these guys, I'd like to go four wheeling with them again. The ones who are still alive. So guys, if any of you watching this, you've probably tuned out long before because
0: of my mouth. Let's get together and go four wheeling again. I say meet it. At Danny Grimes during Easter Jeep next oh, year, if they allow us to.
1: Absolutely. Danny, what a I mean, he's not only a great driver, he's a crack-up to be with, you know. I mean, absolutely. I think it was Danny that one year we were at the bottom of White Knuckle, and it was just a bunch of friends, so it wasn't a run. I think it was Danny, and it might not have been, but I'm pretty sure it was him. He gets up to the bottom. Of, of the the big vertical part and so he gets up and he's off and then he floors it and that jeep leaped it, it was like a, a harrier jet it leaped vertically and then just landed on the top of the ledge he didn't touch the ledge it was <laughs> hilarious and then he's just sitting there everybody's laughing you go what <laughs> i think that was danny he might say that wasn't me <laughs> But, but yeah, it was, it was fun. Phil Collard, uh, you know, you had a samurai at one time, I think, didn't you? Nope, not me. Not you? I went through a period where I had a couple and we built them, uh, Ken Francisco Zook and I put them together. Dan Mick had a, had a samurai and then Phil, um, uh, Dean Bullock, I remember he had a stretched one that was pretty cool. But there was a little period there in the mid nineties when I had a samurai and three of us, Zook and me and and Dan went down to Farmington to just wheel with Phil and and Jim Peterson and Harold off those guys. And they have an obstacle on one of the trails called riffraff. And uh, they called it that because they said, Oh, it's too hard. It keeps the riffraff off the trail. So, we're at the end of the line. They put us at the end because the cheesy Samurais and all three of us get up there and Phil comes down and Phil Collard says, uh, well, we got to change the name. Now the riffraff got up the trail, <laughs> <laughs> but I got him back. Cause a little further up, he, uh, he got stuck and couldn't go back or come forward up a hill So I pulled him up there with my samurai and got pictures, people got pictures of it on the strap. (laughs) And I've always threatened him with those pictures. I mean, I haven't talked to him for years now, but I always threatened him. One of these days I'm gonna publish that. He goes, what, me pushing you with my strap? (laughs) But but it was it was fun. Those are great stories. Four wheeling has always been a lot
0: of fun, and it still is. Absolutely. Well, so. Phil, thank you so much for spending the time with us and sharing your history and your experiences and, and everything that you've done in the industry to get us to where we're at nowadays. You know, we're going to have to pick up the conversation again down the road and do this maybe in person. I hope that uh, we can make that happen. I'd be happy to do it. And I
1: apologize, my mouth runs. And no, don't worry my, about it. You, my story, did a great interview. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> thanks, and and uh, for everybody I didn't mention. Well, you you'll edit this, but I do feel bad because I know there's a ton of other people that I haven't mentioned that deserve to be mentioned.
0: Well, a lot of them will end up on conversations with big rich in the future. Well, good, and they'll forget to mention me, so then I'll get, <laughs> they'll get It'll all wash, wash out in the end.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Rich. And and really, if you get down here, like if you're headed down to see your son in southern Utah, I just live in Eagle Mountain now. Okay. And, and so maybe give me a call. Maybe get together for lunch or dinner or something or stop by or whatever. Sounds great. All, all right. right. All right, Phil. Hey.
0: Thank you very much. Have, Have a great you. evening. You too. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.